Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Larissa Whitaker. I'm Caleb Meyer. I'm Steven Stahoski. And I'm Ben Clemmer. This feels somewhat poetic because overall in our hierarchy of episodes to this point, this is episode 27. And of course, back in 1939, one of my all-time favorite characters, Batman, debuted in Detective Comics number 27. And this episode is coming out, production moving as it should, uh, on the 30th anniversary of, in my own humble opinion, one of the greatest TV shows ever made, Batman the Animated Series. And the five of us are here to discuss that, and I say five because we have a guest joining us in studio. We would like to welcome Todd Esplund, Executive and Artistic Director at Fort Wayne Youth Theater, a friend and someone who I know is also a li lifelong fan of the show, as well as the person who told Caleb and me about the Hall of Heroes, where we ended up making a trip for our finale of season one. So thank you for sending us up to Elkhart to see the museum. It was amazing. First of all, thanks for having me. And dude, I am so happy you guys went and made that trip. That's awesome. Oh my gosh, it was so much fun. Yeah, and we got to see actual cells from the animated series. Yes, so. indeed. And, uh, Alan was very happy to point those out to us. I mean, I think I remember there's one like with a statue in the background and Batman brooding in front of it as he's mm -hmm. investigating something. I can't remember which episode that was one was from. And then, of course, there's one of Harley Quinn. I mean, just, yeah, so many cool things. That place is awesome. And it's weird. It's in the middle of Indiana. Yep. And has the largest comic book and memorabilia collection in the world, I think. Or I might be paraphrasing a little bit from how Alan described it to us. But, yeah, if you have not gone to the Hall of Heroes, go to the Hall of Heroes. Anyway, <laughs> Batman the Animated Series. <laughs> oh, my word. So this has been, again, once I realized, oh... This is going to line up, episode 27, it's September, for the 30th anniversary, and Todd and I were already kind of starting to communicate. We were able to make this happen, and so it is wonderful uh, that we are all here. After our team, specifically to prepare for this, uh, did go through and watch many episodes, going back to uh, some of the classics. In fact, I went through, I think it was, just looked up Batman the Animated Series on YouTube today and just like, let's let's see what some of the top results are. And of course, one of those is a Watch Mojo video of like top 10 Batman the Animated Series episodes. Every single episode in their top 10 was on our list, excluding the ones that were technically from the new adventures, because there's a couple of really strong ones there that were also on their list that aren't technically from the original series. How we want to break this down, we want to talk about things like the writing of the show, the world building, the music, the incredible voice acting and performances. And I think to put that in context, it would be good to go around and each of us can kind of talk about our own experience and relationship with the show. Uh, and seeing as you are our guest, Todd, if you would like to do that first, oh, uh, ta All talk right. about your uh, experience of Batman and Batman the Animated Series. Right, you so also probably have the first experience with the show out of anyone here at this table. That is fair. Maybe. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm older than everybody at this table, and I'm not. A fr I'm in 53. So when the Animated Series came out, I was just finishing up my undergraduate years. Um, I had worked at a comic book store partway through college. When the cartoon came out, it was sort of one of those things that, you know, I had time in my schedule to watch it during the day because um, I was a you know, doofus college student. It was just really great. I just thought it was done really, really well. And I, I was a Batman fan anyway. I was a DC fan. Previously had been a Marvel fan and then moved over to the, a DC fan because it was that period of, you know, 86 through 91 mm -hmm. is when DC Comics was really publishing some, some really good comics and some really seminal comics and changing what comics do. And the series came out and it was just, it was really good. I mean, it was, 
I don't I don't even think I know how I discovered it. It was just on TV and I went, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And it was clear all of the influences that went into it mm-hmm. were really great. It was clear that there was, you know, that it was they were basing it on the Fleischer Supermans from the 30s and 40s. It was it was just a great show. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so many of the the character designs like Bruce Timm's art style and seeing some of the stuff he's done in comics since then, it just it works so well. Oh, it's uh, Bruce Timm's the best. I've gotten to have other conversations with other local nerds who have been at this longer than I have been. And just to what extent, like, it's a completely different context. Like, comics and the pop culture landscape were in a completely different place in the early 90s than what they are now. It's not the pop cultural film tentpole that it is today with something like the MCU. But you can look back to Batman the Animated Series, and whether it's through actors who have continued to play the parts for decades to just other shows and plot points and things that would come afterwards you see the ripple effects everywhere. Uh, one of the biggest examples, of course, being the character of Harley Quinn, who will also be turning 30 with the anniversary. We did want to go into and kind of talking about just some of the writing and some of the storytelling uh, because the show won an Emmy for the episode uh, Heart of Ice. We had uh, Bryant Rozier for a spotlight in our second season, specifically talking about that episode because they took guy with an ice gun and a bunch of puns who commits crimes and that sort of thing like basically a silly character from the silver age suddenly becomes this tragic figure in batman's rogues gallery with what they were able to do with that episode and i believe that was one we all watched in preparation so just Mm -hmm. thoughts on heart of ice and the way it resonated it was interesting seeing it for the first time because obviously i've been exposed to you know mr freeze's story but post batman the animated series like in the arkham games or you know, some of the various later animated movies that Mr. came along. Schwarzenegger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and it, it's crazy how quickly on the heels that would have followed, because it would have been like five years later that yeah. origin story is in a live action film. Yeah, and it's roughly the exact same. It absolutely overhauled the character. It turned him from effectively a duplicate Captain Cold <laughs> to uh, Snart. <laughs> to something uh, to something greater, to something ag- you can actually kind of sink your teeth into a, a believable and memorable character. Snart is fun, uh, a la the Flash universe. He also tells puns in Heart of Ice, just like he does in Batman and Robin. Right. <laughs> I so enjoy the consistency of puns. That was one of my favorite moments in the entire episode, where the soup that was planted earlier in the story paid off in the climactic scene. <laughs> it's Chekhov's soup. Yeah. Chekhov's soup. The only way to fight a cold. Oh gosh! <laughs> or, or, or and then in his from his I geeked out about this with Brian just from his introduction or their first interaction. Freeze! That's Mister Freeze to you. <laughs> uh, just Michael Ansara's just emotionless, haunting performance. In, in, yeah, in that character. the voice acting so for, for Mister Freeze I think is honestly what makes him the most compelling in my book. Is that just reptilian? Well, pun fully intended, but it's a chilling performance. It is. completely <laughs> is.
my exposure to the show wasn't really when it was airing, but it was when I was given the DVD box sets as a gift when I was maybe like late grade school heading into junior high, which was the perfect age to enter this world. So it would have been mid 2000 aughts. It was wonderful to get to experience these portrayals for the first time because I'd maybe seen a little bit here or there when I was younger, but just going through every single episode, getting to absorb all of that as we went along and just realize I, I can look back on it now and see how that planted a seed because it was definitely a, oh, these people do an amazing job making a living with their voice and just different oh, nice. areas yeah. in which I can see that it informed the direction I wanted to go in life, combining the vocal performance aspect, the, the, just the voice acting and the performances in general, and then having my mind blown when I realized, oh, my childhood hero is voicing one of the greatest villains in fiction. <laughs> okay. Good for you, Mark Hamill. My exposure to the anime series is going to be very similar to yours, where I caught episodes here and there, Saturday morning cartoons type thing. Uh, except I never really went any farther than that until doing research for this episode. So I'm coming to the anime series now with a much more renewed respect, intellectually knowing exactly how much it inf has influenced the way Batman has been done since, but not really watching the series religiously until obviously I borrowed your box sets and crammed last minute because my life is crazy to kind of fill out some of these episodes. And I, I do want to go back. I might hold on to them. I, I meant to bring them to you tonight, but I might hold on to Enjoy them for a while them. Yeah, and uh, good. go through more of them. Cause it was really interesting. My wife and I were watching last night and she goes, this is a kid show. <laughs> and I said, well, <laughs> there's a reason I don't let the three-year-old watch it. <laughs> It's because it's a little bit more, uh, a little bit more intense than maybe the three-year-old should get right now, but soon. And it was great. I really was really, really drawn to uh, the Two Face episodes. I always really liked the concept of Two Face, and so getting to see the animated series tackle Harvey Dent, that was a great two episodes to just watch that process and see where the Dark Knight tried to cover all of that, and maybe just got a little bogged down in a lot of extra stuff going on that Two-Face didn't quite get the justice I thought he needed in that movie in particular. Oh, it's a completely different story in terms of trying to tell a compelling story in 20 minutes in the animated series versus having 20 minutes of screen time. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I, I was to always... To do that 40 minutes, it's a two-parter in the yeah. animated series. Well, it is true. a two-parter. Yeah. Um, oh, that's really. always been my number one complaint about The Dark Knight. As much as I love the Christopher Nolan trilogy, that's been my biggest complaint is that I always felt like Two-Face got completely gypped. And I've always loved the, the character of Two-Face. Because he's not, I mean, he's evil, but he's not entirely evil. He's got like a, got a code. He's and half it's that, evil? It's that rule, well, it's that rule of chaos. Mm -hmm. It's that flip of the coin. I was really, I was always really intrigued by that. I don't know why. I think that's what the series, the animated series did well that movies don't do well is because it's sequential, because there's so many episodes, you can take time to develop a storyline and you can take time to develop a plot line and you can take time to really let it, to start seeding different parts of a character's character through different episodes rather than having to just get it on the screen really quick be sort of canned about it mm -hmm. you know and that's that's the issue i have with superhero movies is there's a very much a canned quality to it and it has it, they all kind of have their same beats and their same action points and and a series can really allow it to develop and take time to to go somewhere no, I, I totally agree with you. It's like the, the Two-Face in film has never been dealt with well because you have to also add, we have to have a fight scene and we have to have this and it has to test and it has to have these beat points. I loved the fact that 
and and I watched the Two Face episode with my wife, who is a uh, a music therapist. So she deals with oh, wow. She well, she deals predominantly with developmental disability and and cognitive delay uh, individuals. But she had a lot of really interesting points on on split personality and watching how they did Two Face with Harvey and Big Bad Harv, and so that was really really intri- intriguing. And it was I think what made my wife go, "Are you giving these DVDs back to Ben tomorrow?" <laughs> and I went, "Well, I don't have to, I guess." Uh, so I'm sure we'll watch more. But I, yeah, that was one of the episodes that really stood out. The the Robin episode obviously really mm-hmm. stood out going through some of these for, for tonight. No, they they unpack so many interesting psychological concepts. Again, for a 21-minute cartoon, they do a phenomenal job of breaking so many of those down. They also set up Two-Face with the long game they needed because they introduced him first as Harvey Dent. He appears in On Leather Wings. He mm-hmm. appears in Pretty Poison and is dating Pamela Isley in, in the Poison Ivy origin story episode. And then they get to set up his relationship with Bruce Wayne before he finally turns bad in the two-parter. Yeah. And one of the biggest things that my wife pointed out was how almost countercultural Bruce Wayne's handling of Harvey going to therapy was at the time. In her opinion, and I'm not, I don't think she's wrong, her opinion, the lines that Bruce Wayne has about Harvey going to therapy where he says, proud of you, good for you, I'm glad you're doing it, especially kind of in the 90s as it was coming out, seemed to be a little bit less socially acceptable than maybe it would be today. And she was talking about how that's awesome. You're you're showing this predominantly to kids, and these are the lines that they're getting from the hero. And that's that's going to be, that's going to have a lasting impact beyond just the the TV show. That's awesome. I didn't think of that that way. My first experience was my preparation for this podcast episode. I had seen The Dark Knight and probably saw the other Christopher Nolan live action Batman movies at least once, but I've never really explored the Batman character. So I was really struck and surprised by how much this opened me up to a different understanding of Batman and what that universe could look like. And I really enjoyed it. I had a good time. It's a much more comic accurate mm-hmm. portrayal of Batman. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, just it will, it, it leans on the the Dark Knight detective. These stories, a lot of the times, are actually set up as mysteries and can can do a lot of really interesting things. Again, even in short format, it's pre the. This is my Batman voice, and I'm <laughs> yeah, going to you know, beat up the thugs. How was it to not hear Batman talk like this? <laughs> What's weird though is Kevin Conroy was he was saying in an interview. He has a very different voice for Bruce Wayne than he has for Batman. Oh, for sure. Oh. And you can hear it really, in the show. Yeah, and he really deepened the Batman voice. And his, his, he even said, for me, I think that the the deeper, more husky voice is actually who Bruce Wayne really is. And mm. when he's Bruce Wayne, he's he's acting. Mm-hmm. It's that lighter, more yeah. fake persona. But what yeah. was nice about it was like, yeah, it's comic accurate. It still maintains that adolescent power fantasy that makes comic books so great. As opposed to getting really deeply psychological about it. So it really carries some comic book fun, but then it has a little bit of weight to it. Mm-hmm. But not so much weight that you're like, oh man, this is really beating me over the head. And like, it doesn't feel heavy handed. Yeah, yeah. Because you can have moments like a, as worth the line that popped into my head when you were just talking about the lighter Bruce Wayne voice that Kevin Conroy would use. I think it's, in, well, it's one of the Catwoman episodes where he says something, they've just been in a car chase and he says something like, Oh, I've been doing the French Grand Prix for years. You know, one of these times I think I'll enter it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> just little moments like that. Bruce oh. Wayne's got a brilliant wit. <laughs> Very witty. Um, uh, 
going off of that, I my biggest exposure to Batman really was not the animated series, but it was the New 52 comics. Mm. Reading a ton of the New 52, particularly Batman and, and the Green Arrow. I liked their redo of the Green Arrow for New 52. That was my biggest Batman in general, aside from the Nolan films, was reading those comics. Yeah. Well, and this is what gets interesting with the animated series, and, and we've talked about some of these these cool influences in the past, is it's coming in on the tail end of the Bronze Age. So you have so many Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams classics starting in the 70s and moving forward because O'Neill was the Batman editor like up through until like 2000. So his stamp on the character would have been right along with the animated series. And you had the comics starting to gear more towards an older audience, be able to tackle some more in-depth stories and do some interesting things that as you were talking about, Todd, like right in the late 80s, early 90s with things like Year One, Long Halloween are really taking the character in some cool new directions. And the show is able to pull nuggets here or there as influences, or they're able to do entire episodes based on original comics with something like the laughing fish. (laughs) Yeah. I watched that one. That was good. That one pleasantly surprised me. I I went in kind of expecting not to enjoy it that much because it was kind of just a one-off whatever silly thing but that was actually maybe one of the favorite episodes that i watched out of the like 24 list that you had yeah and that one as well as almost got him give us great moments of batman just being a master of disguise because he pretends to be the Mm -hmm. victim of one of one of the victims that joker's going after and in almost got him he's pretending to be killer croc being an idiot while they're playing poker when he's just the way he tried to kill batman was I, I threw, threw a rock, rock at him. <laughs> you know, it I was bet, a big rock. I bet that's just a true story. He was just relating a story that actually happened. Yeah, probably. Knowing Killer Croc, that's probably exactly what happened. Yeah. I think that's a lot of people's favorite episode, just because you have the the iconic way it sets up the villains. You just see their hands, but you know who everybody is. Mm-hmm. Normal here, horribly scarred here. Okay, it's Two Face, flippers. It's Penguin, accompanied by Paul Williams' voice, and of course the white hands of the Joker, and already cheating like from the first move of the game literally the first frame that he's in yeah he's flipping a card for an ace and you have there's also a great two-face line in there because i think when we were planning this episode i talked to you guys about it where it's poison ivy comes up and references the fact that they were once a couple and harvey's not happy to see her and says something like half of me wants to strangle you and what does the other half want to hit you with a truck (laughs) yep (laughs) Both Harvey and Two Face were not happy not, to see Poison Ivy. They don't Ivy. like her. <laughs> well, and that's such a cool episode too, because there's. Uh, have you guys read Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud? Mm-hmm. I have read some of it. Read Understanding. If you like comics, read Understanding. So this guy Scott McCloud, who's a comic artist, wrote this book called Understanding Comics, and he basically goes through and breaks down why sequential art works. What are the things that happen that make it work? And the Batman animated series played with perspective. It didn't do like, you know, when you think about. Like the X-Men series, animated series from the 90s, it was all pretty straight on. If there was an action scene, you saw it straight on. If somebody was fighting somebody else, it was all pretty straight on. They didn't explore depth or angles or like what you just said. The the scene of the poker game starts out by just seeing their hands. And Scott McCloud, one of the things he talks about is it's this concept called blood in the gutters. So in comic books, they would have the comic panel and then you'd have the white separation in between those are called gutters and the concept of blood in the gutters is he details it in it's all done it's all drawn out to this whole book and so he shows a picture of a man chasing another man with an axe and then he shows then there's the gutter and then he shows a picture of a cityscape and somebody screaming and so what happens what happened 
The guy got killed. The guy got killed, right? And, and the idea of blood in the gutters and what makes really good comics and really good sequential artwork is that you, the audience member, don't just get shown to you really good sequential art. You actually commit the murder because you don't Ooh. see the murder. You just see the cityscape. So you play an active part in writing what happens. And that's what was so cool about what Bruce Tim did was playing with perspective or just seeing the beginning of the poker game with just the hands there, you end up having to go, oh, well, that's the Joker. Oh, well, this is this. Oh, and so instead of just kind of sitting there passively watching it, you become an active participant in the programming because of the way it's laid out. And that's, I mean, part of it is, I mean, if Bruce Tim had picked Spider-Man, I think it would have been just as awesome because it wasn't so much that he was using Batman, but it was the way he was choosing to tell the stories and plot the stories out that made it so just amazing. They had to do a bunch of that for some of the content, again, of the show and the audience they were geared towards because another moment that comes to mind is from another one of their episodes that they won an Emmy for, Robin's Reckoning. Part one is is when we see there go dick grayson's parents on the trapeze yep and then you just see the cutoff rope come back into frame you don't see anything else but you hear the audience reaction the music cue and just that one visual well the, 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 the one yeah. famous batman visual which is from year one which is his mother getting killed and so it's the gun and then the pearls all over the 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 alleyway you don't actually see her get shot in the face but you know that's what happened and you can keep playing that symbol over and over and over again yeah, I, they do that all over the series in particular. One that stands out to me from just because I watched it last night, there's a scene, I think it's in it's in the beginning of the, the Two-Face mm-hmm. two-parter where Batman is, drops into a building that's been held up by a bunch of gangsters and he beats the ever-loving out of them. But what we see is the GCPD outside listening to Batman beat the ever-loving out of the gangsters inside the building and then they all come running out in horror. We don't actually see yeah. Batman beat the ever-loving. We just know what happens if you fill it in. And especially from people like our age where we've seen the borderline visceral combat that was brought to the Christopher Nolan films. We know exactly what just happened in that building, but we don't need to see it. Our, our brain is filling it in. Or and the, it's brutal. Uh, the Zack Snyder yep. Batman oh versus Superman. Ugh. Sorry, was that I'm going to kill all these guys <laughs> in this room. Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. So oh, I... Again, just the simple idea of how powerful the mind of your audience is to fill in that blank and to know from what you don't see, you it, still have an incredibly powerful image. If you make life. the audience an equal player in the game or you make them have to engage in some way, they're going to become more empathetically invested in whatever it is you're watching. Yeah, Because another moment from that episode that comes to mind is after the explosion and the first person to get to Harvey is Batman and he turns him over after he's been injured and it's just, Harvey... No, and you don't even see don't what see Batman's anything. seeing, but you no, get it. But you, you understand. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite Batman comics was always the Court of Owls, that set. And there is a section in the Court of Owls where Batman's trapped in a labyrinth. And through the course of the comic, you have to like twist oh, yeah. the comic as you are trying to read through this labyrinth. And then you end up inevitably turning the wrong direction. So I think I spent an hour and a half in the <laughs> labyrinth going, what the crap is going on? <laughs> and to the point where I was like, oh... I really am just as crazy as Batman is going in this in this labyrinth. It's brilliantly done, but the way that the comic is laid out, that sequential art doesn't it wouldn't hit the same if you tried to tried to do it in a movie. You wouldn't it would be much more difficult to make your audience go that crazy showing it. To circle back to the idea of blood in the gutters, Todd, I'm curious about how your experience with Batman 
the animated series has or has not influenced the work that you do in theater? With like understanding comics, for me as a director, that was a really interesting book for me to read as a director and working outside of my medium to understand how to lead an audience. It was effective to me as a director because it helped me understand that there are things that you can do on stage you don't have to feed it to them. You can lead them there. You can get them there. So in terms of it, like if I'm plotting out a scene that I'm I'm directing and just trying to figure out how I'm leading the audience's eye somewhere, how I'm using perspective or where they're on the stage in terms of depth. Are they close to the audience? Are they far away from the audience? How does that affect the audience's perception of the character and the story you're telling? So if you're trying to create a, a scene where a character feels very isolated, can you can you push them really far away Ooh. from an audience um, if you want to create a sense of and they do this really well in the animated series if you want to create a, a sense of constriction for a character and for an audience do you shrink the playing space and how do you use light or how do you use set to shrink the playing space it really is about I mean a lot of people think that theater is well you just memorize lines and you get on stage and a director tells you to be happy or sad and then you do it and as a director, you can really use perspective. You can really use people being close to you far away. I do fight choreography, and I had to break a guy's arm on stage. And so the easiest way to break the person's arm on stage was to have somebody smash it with this stick. And to do it, we I staged it in such a way that you had the guy's arm on a bench. You had somebody with a stick, and as he went and swung the stick, he st stood in front of the person he was hitting. So you never actually saw the stick land, but you heard it hit really hard. And then it's just all acting from there. It's sleight of hand. How do you use that sleight of hand? The understanding comics, if you think of directing, and I think if you think of film directing in that same sequential, there's a lot to be gained from there. There's a lot to be pulled out of there. I need to find that book again because when you first brought it up I, and I mentioned, oh, I, I think I've read parts of this. I was like, why well, don't I remember parts of it? Because it wasn't my book. It was my brother's. Was it? I'm 12 years younger than him. So <laughs> I think I found it on his shelf when I was probably like not even 10 years old and did not understand everything the book was trying to tell me, but I need to find that now. And, and, and it happens all the time in shows, too. Yeah. Like, was it, uh, I want to say it's season three of, or maybe it's season two of Stranger Things. So when they're under, yeah, I, and I'm a dork, I love that show. So when they're, when uh, they send all of those soldiers in to catch the. That's season to, two. Yep. And at the, you know, the episode I'm talking about, they send them in the tunnels and they suddenly realize they're trapped and all the demodogs come after them. The way they staged it was you, there were the guys and there was smoke and you just saw flashlights. And then as each guy got taken out, they took the flashlight off and you didn't see them get torn apart. I mean, you could see people getting torn apart later on, but it was really, that was awesome. It was such a great way to do blood in the gutters in a film, in a, a film representation. Well, and if you want to talk about blood in the gutters, specifically with theater, I'm pretty sure there's a staging of Sweeney Todd where when he, you know, kills his victims, it's all done in silhouette. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. he's up top. Kills the victims in his barber chair, and then you see the you know body come down to the meat pie below, but you don't ever actually see them get killed. Right. That was my biggest complaint about the movie. It got so grotesquely visceral that it just became funny. Like the the sound and the visuals just got so overdone that I was like, <laughs> oh gosh. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just twisted. It didn't land the same way. Then I've seen Sweeney Todd done on stage and it honestly was more terrifying than watching the movie. Exactly. That's choosing when to show the violence, show the blood instead of having it be, you know, hinted at can be very powerful. Well, it's all Hitchcock. Uh, Janet Lee gets stabbed in the shower. 
you see her scream, you see the hand come up, you see the hand go down, you see her scream, you see the hand come up, you see the hand go down, you see her scream, you never actually see Janet Lee get stabbed. Sorry, guys, did I spoil it? <laughs> Janet Lee gets killed in Psycho, everybody. Darth Vader's his dad. What? Jay Davidson's a man. Um, what? Bruce Willis is dead. Bruce Willis is dead. Yeah, there's, we're really ruining people. But it's so effective when Hitchcock does it. And he even said, Hitchcock said, there's like there's nothing more effective than your imagination. So mm-hmm. why? And, and again, I mean, I, I totally dig a total gross out moment you know i was watching resident alien the beginning of season two last night and there's the part where the the fbi not the fbi agent but the woman working for linda hamilton gets her head decapitated by a train you know and there was uh, yeah sorry guys i run a youth theater but i found that really funny (laughs) (laughs) now you might have to remind me of this ben because i might not remember correctly but in the end of Watchmen, does rorschach do you see him get exploded or is it not shown in panel in well, in, in the comic or in the movie? In the comic. In the comic. I don't know. Well, in the comic, the you see a burst of Dr. Manhattan's energy with Rorschach's body in the middle of it. And yeah, it's like a flash. Yeah, it's like a and, back flash. And then there's blood on the ground after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, my word. So one assumes. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Toast. Oh, gosh. Granted, this has been kicking around in my head ever since you talked about the Court of Owls issue with the Labyrinth. Oh, what did you guys it. think of the Riddler episodes? Because he's my personal favorite Batman villain. I liked the first one. Yeah, because the first one is the one with the maze, correct? Yes. Yeah. That was interesting. I kind of liked, you know, the like, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Greek mythology, so anything that sort of relates to that, I'm going to be a fan of. But the second one I was not as into. Well, they did a whole bunch of villain reform episodes kind of later down the line. They did one with Poison Ivy. They did one with Harley Quinn. They did one with the Riddler. They did one with Two-Face. And it's always, oh, will this person turn over a new leaf? And then it's going to be no. And what are the different reasons why? I put Second Chance, the Two-Face one, and Riddler's Reform on the list only really because of just some performance moments because I love Riddler freaking out in Arkham Asylum at the end of Riddler's Reform when he doesn't know how Batman beat a death trap. And Richard Mull delivers maybe one of the best evil laughs of the series once it's revealed that, oh, the person who was trying to kidnap Harvey Dent and make it so that the surgery couldn't be used to heal him was (laughs) Two-Face. And Batman realizes that, gets to his lair, Lightning strikes and Richard Mole just unleashes this laugh that is so sinister. I really liked Second Chance. That yeah. was, yeah, another one I enjoyed quite a bit. I mean, I loved Batman's, you know, solving of the situation by replacing the coin with a trick one. So that it always lands on its side. It never lands on either, that you know, happen. good heads or bad heads. So he just completely shuts down Two-Face because he can't make a decision then. <laughs> it, it ends in a nonviolent way, which mm-hmm. I, I, the detective aspect of it is cool. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, another thing I want to point out, we've been talking so much about Blood in the Gutters. I loved the show's awareness to its continuity. It always shows the goons get out scot-free. Like, none of them die. Because there was one episode, I don't remember, He, I think it's the part two with the Cat and the Claw, where he runs mm. the gangsters oh, off yeah. the bridge. Yeah. So the car goes in the water, and I'm like, okay, well, they're dead. But then, no, you see them both float up, and they swim away, and it's like, okay. I appreciate that. There yeah. was a. It has that moment, intentionality. Another moment of that was in the in the Two Face two parter. Two Face straps Batman to a giant coin. Or no, no, that, no that's, that's almost got, got him. him. Almost yeah. got him. They straps Batman to the giant coin. He says, "If it led, if it lands one way, you'll be squashed flat. But if it lands the other, you'll break every bone in your body." And then we literally watch two goons get smashed <laughs> by same said coin. Later, I'm like, "Well, they're dead." And then, no, they get up and walk away. They're like, well, then how dangerous was this thing? <laughs> it is that same 
continuity of Batman doesn't kill people. And I'm like, well, he breaks every bone in their body and leaves them completely laid up in the hospital, but he doesn't kill them. Oh. It reminds me of Blackbeard in Our Flag Means Death, where he has a philosophy that he's only ever killed one person, but he has uh, given a good meme. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what about those people you, you trapped in that burning house? Well, the fire killed them, not me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I... I love Richard Mull's two-faced voice, but I can't go into it too much, or it will just shred. Oh, yeah, no, shred. I don't know how he does it. <laughs> just, just break every bone in your body. Yeah, it's oh. like, Ugh. oh, how do you do this? Goodness. I'm like, I'm gonna, I, well, I studied opera. I can't do that to myself. That's bad. I was independently doing some reaching out, just trying to get a sense of where people were at. And one performance I did want to make sure we highlighted, because uh, we just lost the performer, was uh, Rachel Ghoul, because David Warner just passed oh, yeah. away yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, within these last couple of months. And he kind of got to do the pro- the prototype out of comics. Like this version of him would have been one of the first to yeah. appear in any other media because of how new Rachel Gould would have been at that point. He would have only been like 25 years old. And then we get a British character actor who's very good at bringing villains to life, sinking his teeth into this version of Rachel Gould. Well, it's such a weird character anyway. Like, how do you make a toy of that? You know, how many kids want to play with the Rachel Gould toy? The demon's head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, Joker, okay, cool. Riddler, okay, I get it. Penguin, I get it. Two-Face, maybe. But this Middle Eastern, like, what? Warlord. <laughs> so, it, yeah, of course it didn't immortal. appear Don't in a, immortal. In a, outside of, like, the, the, the you know, the, the, the Neil Adams comics. Mm-hmm. And you and I were having some fun just about to what extent, like, again, like, one of the, like their final fight scene in the desert with swords is pulled straight out of the comics well i okay i had to point out to ben i texted him and i was like this two-parter what's it called again the demon the demon's head yeah the demon's head or something like that i was like this is a little bit homoerotic there's a lot of men tied up and shirtless i thought it was very funny comic neil neil adams he showed me he ben sent me you know pictures from the actual comic and i was like (laughs) you know what that's exactly the same i lost it when in the final fight between rachel Gould and batman you know, Batman had been a prisoner, so he's shirtless and still has his bat mask on. But then Rachel Gould comes up and literally strips his shirt off to fight him. And I was like, this is so funny. Kind of kind of addictive of the Jedi who dropped their robes to fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of reminded me, because they're, they're sword fighting, so it kind of reminded me of the Errol Flynn swashbuckling oh, yeah. era. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Which also tracks with when those comics would have been written and some of the influences that they might have been pulling from, yeah. I'm going to be the old lady from Titanic for a second and and talk about a thing way in the past. <laughs> but like that, that Rachel Gould story done in the 70s was really important because the Batman comic almost got canceled in the 70s because it was selling really badly. And it wasn't until Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams took over the comic and pushed it in this a little more adult, violent direction that the comic kind of had this resurgence again. Because, it, it, you know, up until that point, it was, was still sort of being influenced by the Batman TV show from the 60s. So it was mm-hmm. a little goofier. It was a little sillier. And then sometime around 72 or 73, they had this shift and it went in this whole new direction. Mm-hmm. What I, would you say that direction was moving toward? Like sincerity or? It was moving towards less camp and more into melodrama. Mm-hmm. Because honestly, yeah. comics are melodrama, and I don't mean melodrama like Snidely Whiplash twirling the mustache, but this idea of, you know, characters, there, there's a character feels something and acts on it, and there's a real sense of danger 
to people's actions. And so they, they kind of started going in that melodrama direction. But that also is sort of what the 70s were doing. The 70s were starting to move away from sort of the camp of the 60s. And if you think about like 73, after 73, we had things like The Godfather and Deer Hunter and um, plays like Equus and all of these things got serious. The, the cool thing about the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams comics is they got serious, but they still retained their essential comic bookness, comic bookiness, adolescent power fantasy, but without making it, you know, I mean, I don't know if you see any of the Batman comics from the 60s, but there's some really stupid bat. I mean, I, I dig Batmite. Batmite is a character I dig, and I'm getting some confused looks. And no, those no, of you, I, please look up Batmite. I, those I have you a, a tiny Batmite action figure in my home office. Batmite is odd, but it, Batmite is this. It was it was like a Batman from another universe, and it was this tiny impy character. And they started getting away from that. Like yeah. Batmite disappeared in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Well, this show is particularly interesting for me to watch because I think watching through the episodes you sent, I'd seen. The Man Who Killed Batman previously. And I think that was the only one I'd ever watched all the way through. Because my first introduction to Batman was the Nightfall comics. I probably picked them up, I don't know, when I was like 15, 16, something like that. And then obviously, you know, Christopher Nolan and all Mm. of that. So Batman's always been very dark and edgy for me. You know, the Arkham video games. And and getting darker and edgier. But I think I've seen every animated Batman movie previously. Mm, That's fair. So walking into this, I was like... Well, that's super interesting. All of the, you know, templates, and I can see how this influenced all of those fantastic animated films. As a person who didn't really grow up with a relationship with Batman or have it be something that was interested on my own outside of the exploration you all have invited me into, what was it that you think you felt drawn to in the Batman character or in Batman the animated series? And what continues to call you back to being interested in other Batman related projects if you feel called back to them. I can jump into that one really quickly because for me it always goes back to the voices. I mean when you read the comics it's who you hear. You hear Kevin Conroy when Batman's talking. You hear Mark Hamill when the Joker's talking and a lot of other ones also carry over. And so it's like you'll have that moment sometimes where like you hear just someone say a first name and you're immediately thinking of someone but it might not be who that person was talking about and you might think oh apparently that's my default david or that's my default steven but you might also have a moment where you're reading something and then as you're hearing the voice it's like oh okay my default batman is kevin conroy my default riddler is john glover and realizing just how indelible so many of those performances are and and even 30 years later of course that's also because some of them have gotten to continue on with the characters for so long i think i i go back to batman more for the story than anything else because i didn't grow up with the animated series And what I grew up with was, I remember very distinctly being six or seven, and there was a family video about two minutes from my house, and I repetitively rented, don't crucify me for this, Batman and Robin, with uh, Chris O'Donnell and Uma Thurman and, well, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm -hmm. And And George George Clooney. Clooney. Yeah, no. You on know, like, paper, there is paper, so much have, in that time really, really that good. should have been amazing. Um, and uh, then, uh, of course, I've grown <laughs> up now and realized that it's not. Joel Schumacher of it all. But the thing is, is like that the man can do an aesthetic. He oh can. My gosh. And you know, it, it made sense. We just recognize it as not being very good sense anymore. But that was the movie that I remember being the first real Batman that I watched, and then getting Batman Beyond. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that one I watched more than the animated series as a kid. And from there, I started getting into the comics. 
So it's never really necessarily been about the actors or the voices for me. It's always been about the story. And there's something really compelling about Batman, about Bruce Wayne and the way he approached this trauma and how he became Batman. And Batman is really more his true identity than Bruce Wayne. I think you kind of universally see that through all of his iterations. Well, there's one of my favorite episodes in Batman Beyond, which for context, Larissa takes place, what? Beyond? Probably 40 years. Yeah. Batman is retired 40 years later. Someone else has taken up the mantle in the future Gotham. So he's and like a not, mentor to Yeah, but it's also not new. Dick Grayson. No. Which I it's not. Like, uh, Terry McGinnis. Yeah, no, but one of my favorite uh, episodes is Bruce Wayne is being drugged or kidnapped or something. His mind's being messed with, essentially. And then he eventually breaks out of it. And Terry is like, well, how'd you know you were under a spell? And he's like, because the voice in my head didn't call me Batman. And that's mm-hmm. what I call myself in my head. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I think that's what always draws me back to Batman is, yes, there is that adolescent power trip, which is what it is. And I love it. But the stories were always really compelling. They were always really cool. And they always involved a unique twist. Trying to predict the plot of Batman can be very, very difficult. And sometimes very simple. But uh, more often, it's that nice variety. Whereas other things that I was watching at the time or, or reading at the time became super predictable. And Batman never really was. May I jump in on something with Blood in the Gutters? Because you just reminded me of sure. uh, of a moment. Uh, Batman Beyond or Justice League or Justice League Unlimited. It's still Kevin Conroy playing even that older version of Bruce Wayne. And I think it was a two-parter in Justice League Unlimited where they're dealing with Kronos and time travel and all sorts of stuff. And they end up in the future. So you have present day Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, and Batman meeting old Bruce Wayne. And they capture some villainous thug and Batman's holding him off a roof and just goes, talk, my arm's getting tired. And old Bruce Wayne pulls the guy back onto the roof after just saying something like, I can't believe I was ever that green. (laughs) And is approaching the thug with his cane and just says, this is how you interrogate someone. Fade to black. Bruce Wayne is terrifying. Yeah. (laughs) Batman is terrifying. I love the the Justice League plot where he's like, yeah, I have a contingency plan for all of you. Oh, Justice League. Always. I always have a contingency plan for all of you. And there is a contingency plan for me. You just don't know what it is. Or it's the Justice League. It's the Justice League. Yeah. Oh, Oh, gosh. There was one where Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne got switched. Their powers got switched. It was a comic. I don't remember which comic. But Bruce Wayne's personality with Clark Kent's powers. That's terrifying. (laughs) He rid the world of crime. <laughs> All of it. I wonder if I wonder if that was the Batman Superman series from the the aughts. I don't remember. Yeah. But it was it was no, it was like uh, uh the minority report. Mm. Where he was starting to take people out before they committed crime. Mm. It was very scary. I think very, very scary. Kingdom Come has a nineties vintage, if I'm remembering right, and that's also a great comic book that has an old Bruce Wayne and like there's bat drones patrolling the city and Gotham City is now one of the most crime-free places on the entire planet <laughs> because Bruce Wayne has had all of the time in the world to perfect his methods to that degree. And then when Superman shows up to talk to him in the cave, he says something like, I bow to your superior wisdom. Endlessly snarky. Two is a favorite, Bruce, and by a sense of humor. To go back to your question, I think I come back to Batman because out of most of the comics that I've read, which isn't, you know, a vast amount. He has the most interesting supporting cast. Hmm. Like, I really like Commissioner Gordon. Alfred's great. Obviously, his rogues gallery Alfred's fun. is iconic. But 
you know, all the Bat family, the various Robins and stuff, like each of them have a very distinct personality that's pretty interesting. So yeah, I think just the world around him is very rich. I'm trying to remember if this line isn't on Leather Wings, because before Ephraim Zimbalst Jr. was cast as Alfred, they did have a different actor for just a couple of episodes, like in some of the earliest ones. And there's a great moment where Batman's leaving the cave to go fight crime, and Alfred has a line like, I'll cancel Master Bruce's rendezvous with Bambi, was it, sir? Yeah, yeah, that is a line from that, yeah. Yes, Alfred, do that. (laughs) Or even characters like Bullock and Montoya. Mm -hmm. Like, they just flesh out the world so much more, because you have Bullock, who's this, like, scummy, awful guy, but he's still trying to do the right thing. At least in the animated series, he is. Even, yeah, well, at least in the animated series, because later iterations of Bullock are pretty pretty non-exemplary but that bullet for bullock mm-hmm. the whole premise of the episode is that someone's threatening his life and then it turns out to be his landlord because <laughs> you're not a tenant you're a pestilence <laughs> why wouldn't you just leave <laughs> it was hilarious when george and i were uh, watching it and i'm like oh that oh it's the landlord she's like really he's that awful and i said have you you you've been watching this you've seen his apartment she's like oh, yeah good point yeah, that made my skin crawl when he oh. comes back to his apartment and he thinks there's, like, a shadow with a gun on the wall and it's just a swarm of roaches. Oh, <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> Set to a wonderful film noir soundtrack. Like, yeah, we, again, this was the music Emmy, which is why I wanted to make Emmy. sure you saw it. Oh, yeah, my, word. my comment earlier about being operatically trained. The music in that one is, by itself, really, 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 really good. But there were a couple of moments, particularly in the episode, that the beats of the music didn't feel like they lined up very well. You have this very upbeat fight tracks, these really fast bop type jazz tracks moving with a combo, a small horn section that very quickly fade towards a large studio orchestra brass section. And you've got this really weird classic Hollywood or film orchestra mixed with jazz 40s, 50s noir style jazz combo. And that was really, really cool listening to it by itself. But as I'm watching the episode with it, they didn't, like I said, they didn't really always line up. The The film orchestra would fade, would come in on these big brass hits for certain aspects of the episode. But then when you would expect a bigger, brassier feel for the music, you've got quick bopping, moving uh, saxophone and horns during a fight. Like the the tail end of the fight with Bullock and Batman taking out uh, Vinny the Shark, <laughs> I think mm-hmm. it was right. Yeah, is this really really high speed, high energy jazz combo as opposed to the big brass sound, which is what I would expect for that kind of a fight. That climactic, uh, finally got the bad guy. Let's put him away. Batman and Bullock are going to take him out. Kind of a feel, but when you take the episode away. That music and the way that it's it seamlessly flows between the jazz combo and then the big studio orchestra and the jazz combo again without stopping. All of the music is one consecutive idea throughout. You could get a good idea, the premise of the episode, just listening to the music. I think that's why it won its Emmy. It's a very cool soundtrack to listen to, but I think there are actually other episodes I would have said this music is better suited for the episode. Mm-hmm. The musical hits in the Two-Face episode, coming back to it again, the musical hits in the Robin origin story episodes, but then also the that same f- uh, film noir jazz muted horn sound for almost got him. Those <laughs> yeah, all uh, those those examples felt like the music was better cued 
not necessarily better written, but better cued to what was going on on screen. And they have so many amazing light motifs for so many of the villains. Yes, there was a lot of that. And what I really loved about watching as many episodes as I did was those light motifs do not go away. Light motif, dear listener, being theme in this in this instance, like how uh, you know it's Darth Vader when you hear Darth Vader's music. That being a motive, a theme. The old musical term being light motif. Light being L E I T, not spelled L I G H T or L I T E when you're talking about beer. <laughs> so I have a question. Yeah. Because on HBO Max, there's three seasons. Yeah. Of this, but the third one looked like it had a different animation style. Mm. Yep, that's New Adventures. It's closer to the the Bruce Tim style that was on the Justice League cartoon. Okay, which is basically just a refinement of what was going on in the Batman series. They just refined it a little bit more and cleaned it up. If you look at it, you can see kind of the natural progression of it into that. So is it technically series. the same show or different? It's it's a different version of of the same show because okay. you they they do a lot of different things with the New Adventures. They progress the timeline forward. So it's a different Robin. It's Tim Drake instead of Dick Yes, Grayson. I did notice that. It's They use the Bat family more regularly. So you have Nightwing and Batgirl and Tim Drake in more episodes. Just skip over Jason Todd. Yeah, well, Jason Todd well, was dead. Well, they kind of... What or they ended he? up doing was they kind of combined them. Because they used Tim Drake in name and kind of in likeness, but they used Jason's origin story. Because hmm. they had his only living parent get killed by Two-Face. And... Then he ends up as the ward of Batman, as opposed to Tim Drake, who figures out that Bruce Wayne is Batman and then gets taken in by him later on. As yeah, Robin. you know, honestly, yeah. I, I like that better for Tim. Yeah, because well, it gives Tim something different than yeah. the other ones. Yeah, like, he's yeah. Tim's the very smart. smart. Yeah, that's the comic book origin. Four very very smart. Then you get to Damien. Damien's evil. He is. <laughs> I love Damien. Damien's evil. <laughs> oh my word! The other biggest differences with New Adventures because it's largely the same cast. The most prominent recast was also the most prominent redesign because I will always love the new adventures version of Scarecrow because they made him look absolutely terrifying. Yeah, he, that actually was a yeah, really good version he, of that. He went that from was a nice upgrade. Yeah, went from just like brown hats, costumes stuffed with straw, just like tan colored mask over face, almost looks like a jack o' lantern, to like Texas Chainsaw Massacre leather face look wide brim preacher's hat, noose around neck, walking with a cane, and voiced by Jeffrey Combs. Yeah. Who was so menacing. Yeah. What's that's a good that's a good who, redesign. Who voiced him uh for the Arkham games? Was it also Combs? I don't think it was Combs at I don't that know. Point. Whoever they yeah. I don't remember who it is, but whomsoever they did get to do the voice for Scarecrow in the Arkham games literally gave me nightmares. Well by the time they got to Arkham Knight it was John Noble. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no wonder it gave me terrifying. You still haven't watched all the Fringe. You need to. I know. I know. But John Noble is... Yeah. Oh, no, but, that makes so yeah, much sense. That's, that's, yeah, that's the redesigned Scarecrow. Yes, that yeah. thing also gave me nightmares. Yeah, it's ah! a really good Scarecrow. It's terrible. And then it's picture him scary. sounding something like, what's the use of providing no. test subjects? I'm not watching that. <laughs> yeah, it's really... It's scary. Good. He's scary. And no, frankly, really scary. I mean, like the place that the series 
when and all of the Bruce Tim stuff. So Batman Beyond, the Justice League, Justice League Unlimited. It was just a really nice progression of what they started out with. Oddly enough, I don't know if you guys know this, but the thought was the 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 aesthetic behind it was we want this show to look as good in black and white as it would look in color. So in the in the almost got him where we see Joker story on the black and white television and you see the whole thing done through black and white, they they did that to say See proof of concept, and that was that was the proof of concept, so that you could do a an animated cartoon that would look just as good in black and white. And I think they carried that through as they kept evolving and evolving and evolving what Bruce Tim was doing. Yeah, well, the entire animated universe. I mean, well, Batman the animated series was the bedrock. It was the, it was the first one they did. Like yeah. after they came out of creating Tiny Toons, they then went on to they went on to the animated series and everything that came later, whether it was Superman or Justice League. Yeah, it was all built on this foundation. Is Static Shock also done by Bruce Tim? Yeah. Yeah, same creative team. Any other performance elements or different things that stuck out to you that, again, I am so happy you all got to come into this Batman the Animated Series 30th anniversary experience? I was really struck by how the show looked because it really felt like everybody who worked on it deeply cared about it. And it was really interesting to me, to notice the way the title cards worked for each upcoming episode. Oh, my God, oh, beautiful. Yes, like how it gave you a sense of the tone of what was to come. And it also, I don't know enough about film history to claim this, but the way it connected to me, at least to what I remember from older animated films like Lady and the Tramp and other productions, like having that intro to sort of ease you into the story that you're about to experience. And I really thought the way that they used shape and color. So in Joker's favor, when Batman's walking through the booby-trapped area and he walks across this big circle on the floor that flips and it looks like he almost flips into the trap and onto all these different spikes. But then you can just see his eyes light up on half the screen. And I just think that's really interesting and creative. And I'm guessing, because I know very little about comic books, that that calls back to so much of the history that forms what the animated series is built on. Well, I think it also it also comes out of that the Fleischer Superman cartoons from the 40s, which kind of had that sense of they were focusing on shape, they were focusing on color, they were focusing on what is obscured or what is what is shown. It's that Bruce Tim thing, uh, and then Paul Dini and Eric, I cannot say his last name, Radomski. Radomski. They all really wanted to just deliver a really cool show. That I mean, you're right. They did care about it. They wanted to deliver this cool show that sort of led you somewhere rather than kind of gave it all mm. to you like it trusted you right it yeah it, it didn't it didn't talk down to you and and like for me because I, I like I, I like Batman but I'm not it would shock anybody I've I don't have any comics anymore I've gotten rid of all my single issues because I'm just not I'm not interested in collecting them and or being one of those Batman fans where I gotta have every issue mm. and I have to have it. what appealed to me was the exactly what you're saying which is the storylines that you were talking about and how they were kind of emotionally based but then it was the delivery system you know because there's plenty of batman comics out there that i think are fine but i don't want to own but like tim sales version of his comics the delivery system the visual delivery system is just so intriguing and it doesn't it doesn't pander to you and it doesn't talk down to you it it kind of invites you in so that you have to Kind of like I said earlier, you become an equal player with it to sort of engage with it. I've got one comic book that is a series of Tim Sale illustrated uh, stories. That's the only through line of all of them. A bunch of different writers and in kind of different eras of his drawing of Batman. And there were different introductions for some of them where he got to talk about. And this kind of goes back to the blood and the gutters idea. Because I know one of them is Batman showing up to a crime scene and you're seeing broken glass window 
the different ways the room has been disrupted, where the floor is a mess, uh, crime scene, and still in the midst of being processed. And he talks about how I put way too much detail into this panel. Like if I really, <laughs> if I had done, like if I had done this later in my career, you would see Batman looking through a broken window, and that is it. Yeah, mm. <laughs> yeah, that was, and I, I think I know what you're talking about. That was early on, in, in that uh, Tim Sale, uh, Jeff Loeb relationship I, and i think that particular story might have been james robinson if i'm thinking oh, really? of the right one oh, cool. it might oh gosh who did uh the black mirror release <laughs> that is scott snyder and that's funny, funny enough snyder. that's also going black mirror specifically is going to be the spotlight of the august episode <laughs> you were with me when i bought it mm-hmm. uh it was when we checked out uh arcade games over off at of east state shout out to them they're doing cool stuff they're, um, they're great i was really i was really really impressed uh but bought that that one did a really really good job of of having individual frames that were very busy, but having not not having a panel in the book that felt like it was too much going on. Mm. Uh, everything flowed very, very well. But I think that's one of the things that makes the animated series stand out so much is that you have very, very saturated frames going through the screen. You have things that are very saturated, very heavily colored, very active, but not busy, not distracting. It's very there's a very clear focus in every single shot. It's essential. The mm-hmm. the essential elements are all there to to make it happen. That sounds so pretentious, but I mean it is. It's like you don't need any more than what was there and if you add any more you'll screw it. Well, a lot of that deals with like the backgrounds too. Mm-hmm. The backgrounds are very like basic and I mean in some shots there is no background. It's just like one solid color because they don't want to distract from that central focus. Yeah. It reminds me of a shot in Perchance to Dream, the one where Batman is like trapped in his own mind in this alternate life where he's only Bruce Wayne. And that scene when he's on the top of a building and he confronts this universe's Batman and it's just the two of them and maybe like a small fixture of the building and you see you see the haziness of the clouds and this weird green like seafoam color going through all of it that feels as uncomfortable as like he must feel and trying to figure out what is going on here in the uncertainty. And I thought that was a really neat way for you to be brought along that journey too. They do a great job of physicalizing the emotional intent. Yes. Thank you. That's No, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. Oh, you made me so happy in referencing that episode. Oh, God. Per chance to dream it threw, threw me for a loop, but it really threw my wife for a loop. <laughs> Again, music therapist. This is This is the work she does. She looks at people who have these kinds of emotional baggage and these kinds of split personality almost. Cause I think Bruce Wayne really does suffer just about from split personality but beside the point. She was like, this is so weird. I'm going to, she's going to make me watch it again. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was, that was a good one. I didn't like it. <laughs> By the end, I got to it the end of Perchance Dream and I was like, this is, I don't ever want to watch that one again. Can we watch <laughs> something else now? Oh, okay. <laughs> Most pieces of Batman media with the Mad Hatter are going to make you feel a little uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, the Mad Hatter. Wide range of reasons. Oh, gosh. Well, and just, and then for me, like the, the skin crawl ending is always going to be, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? Because they don't successfully capture Riddler. And you have Mockridge, the man who Riddler's been trying to get the entire episode, going from room to room in his house, making sure the doors are locked with a shotgun, and Batman's monologue over the top that just ends with, how much is a good night's sleep worth? Yeah, that that was one of the episodes where I was like, this is for children? Because if I watch this as a child, that would freak me out. <laughs> and again, John Glover, my favorite version of the Riddler. Going back to the visual stuff, I loved the... The POV episodes when it's a bad guy, especially like the 
the goons, the little gangsters, because Batman's so like the way they visualize him in that is so intimidating. I love he does it a couple times throughout the series when he like throws his cape around him and it's mm. just this pool, this column of shadow with these pinpricks of light yeah. from his eyes. Oh, it's such a like creepy visual. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And the show used the gangster characters so well, whether it was the machinations of Rupert Thorne or the fact that Arnold Stromwell was usually kind of dealing with could go one way or the other and Batman's trying to get him to do better with his life. They also used Roland Daggett to great effect. Uh, we didn't watch Feet of Clay the, or the, any of the Clayface episodes, but those are also... Oh, the Clayface. I was oh, surprised that so, wasn't on there. They're so the good. Clayface episodes and are Ron so Perlman. good. Ron Perlman is a Wait, treasure. Ron Perlman voices? Yeah, yes. Why didn't you put any of those on there, Ben? <laughs> we Ron wanted 26. We already had 24. <laughs> Why didn't we do 27? <laughs> Why didn't we do 27? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, okay. Feet of Clay parts one and two. What makes anyway. Feet of Clay so good? It goes into Clayface's inner life. You know, like Clayface was this goofy clay character who could make himself look like anything, and and instead they kind of go into his inner life in a in a way that is feels good for the Batman cartoon. Mm. Um, but it goes in in the same way they would with um, Mister Freeze. But they go into his inner life, and then there's just this great moment at the end. The climax of it is really well done, and it, and you know, and some of it too is I've had called up on my phone. All like all of the voice actors for the show, mm-hmm. and there's just so many. You know, you freaked out about oh, is Ron Perlman? There's just so many good character actors that just they get to do Richard Mall. I don't know if those of you listening remember Richard Mall, but he's the bald Two-faced, bailiff. Yeah. But he's the bald bailiff from from uh, Night Court. I mean, he basically played. He was a big giant actor and basically played big giant goofs or big giant dumb guys. And here is Richard Mall like delivering this really lovely nuanced performance. And all these character actors, Adrian Barbeau, Roddy McDowell, Malcolm McDowell, uh Eileen Sorkin, Diane Pershing, Matt Frewer, David Warner, Paul Williams. I mean, there's so many really good actors who get to do these like really cool nuanced performances within basically what's like, you know, a kids show. Yeah. And got to do it in the context of this is something else that always gets highlighted with Batman the Animated Series. Even though you could, in theory, record everybody individually and stitch it together, they always had everybody in the same room. And so everyone's lined up side by side, seated at their microphones, with the exception of Mark Hamill, who would record while standing because of the energy it takes to play the Joker. And they would get to act and react and respond to one another. And you get the chemistry between Batman and Catwoman, the back and forth between Batman and Joker just all works so well. And yeah. No, and there's yeah too many amazing performers to highlight. And it probably, I mean, it, I, I'm just guessing, I don't know this. I'm just guessing they probably got all these great performers and were able to do it. Cause it was so under the radar. It was like 1992. Who gave a crap? You know, it's this cartoon. It's going to be for kids and we want to sell more toys. And they were able to bring in like the art style was really complex it was based off of these Fleischer cartoons and this kind of funky Art Deco style and then the saturated panels and then you bring in all of these like really fine character actors. It was like it was set up for success and I'm sure I'm sure Warner Brothers was like, just throw money at it. We're going to sell plenty of toys. And so, you know, Bruce Timm and Paul Denny got to create these 20 minute little cool plays. They almost kind of feel like radio plays. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Like you, I mean, you, could. you don't want to lose the visuals because they're so amazing, but mm-hmm. you could like just turn yeah. the visuals off and you'd still get 
Yeah. Everything. Although it's so funny, like it was it was this one I was watching. I think it was the first uh, Cat in the Claw. There wasn't a lot of dialogue for a lot of the episode, and I was like, I love this. Hmm. There's not a lot of dialogue, <laughs> and that's actually kind of cool. Don't tell me. Show me. There was a lot. There's a yeah. lot of that going on in the whole series. It's not just those opening. It's it's all across. And you can take away various, you could, and it would be lesser for it, but you could take away various aspects of the show and just present to me the music or just present to me the visuals without any sound or just the dialogue. You could, you still have a complete story being told. And when you have the individual parts as complete as they are, when you put them all together, the, the final product is just incredible. Todd, I want to thank you so much for joining us for Storytelling Breakdown. Yes, we got to explore you. a lot of really fun territory yeah. with this. Thank and you I mean, for having me. This was actually a really fun conversation. Thank you so much.
That was September, an original from the Backpacker album by Lucas Norton. For today's spotlight, we are talking about Buffy the Vampire Slayer with Maria Ward. Maria and I have been friends for a long time. We met in elementary school. Uh, For Scooby-Doo fans, she is the SD McCrawley to my shizzy McCreepy. And she is the one who introduced me to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. More on that in the interview itself. But first, a couple housekeeping items. One, spoilers ahead for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. If you haven't watched it and you want to, this is your invitation. Two, a general content warning as we will discuss some of the harder topics referenced in Season 6 of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. There's also content warning for language and explicit mentions of rape and sexual assault. Maria, I'm so excited to be talking to you in this space. So welcome to the Storytelling Breakdown Spotlight. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, I know, I am glad to share with people that you are the person who introduced me to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, for context, Maria and I have been friends since we were eight or nine years old. And when we were about high school age, Maria loved Buffy and she continued loving Buffy and continued loving Buffy. And I still sat out reluctant to engage with the Buffy media. And then something happened in 2020 where I suddenly had a lot of time to go and explore different opportunities of things I hadn't watched, things that had been recommended to me. And with Maria's guidance, I had the joy of watching seasons four through seven um, of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So first and foremost, Maria, thank you for bringing that media into my life. Thank you for finally watching it. (laughs) I know I held out long enough, but um, it was meant to be when it happened, I think. So that's how I came into my experience with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But Maria, can you tell me more about what sparked your interest in the series? How did it all begin? I was interested in watching Supernatural, but I watched the first episode and bawled my eyes out. I was so terrified. My mother was offering me recommendations and one of them just happened to be Buffy. It was the only title I could remember in the list of 20 things she had listed. (laughs) And so I gave it a try and I absolutely loved it. I loved the most probably all the quick little comedy comments made between the characters I thought that was so fun it is a funny show it's fun how quippy it is all their little back and forths are sort of like those breadcrumbs right that keep you going throughout the rest of the story too yes was that around when you were in high school age yes and so if you started watching it and It was the one title out of all the ones that your mom listed that stood out to you. Um, What made you keep watching it and re-watching it? I think that the thing that made me continue to watch it and re-watch it, I started watching because my mom recommended it. The quips kept me coming. And then I stayed around long enough for the continual back-to-back storylines. I think the master is in the first two-part episode and I loved it. It kept me hooked and I continued to watch throughout. Nice. You have a unique relationship with Buffy the Vampire Slayer that you don't necessarily have with other shows that you've watched and enjoyed, right? Like Buffy the Vampire Slayer holds a special 
place in your heart. It does. It's my comfort show. Anytime I'm maximum stressed or sad or happy, it's my go-to show. <laughs> I watch it for any emotion. <laughs> nice. What do you think it is about Buffy that provides that space for you in a way that other shows don't? I think that Joss Whedon did a phenomenal job in relating to people and relating to different real world problems. There's a story arc that goes on about drugs and high school problems, suicide. They touch on so many real life problems. And, you know, as a depressed teenager, you're like, wow, this hits hard. Hmm. So it sort of gave you a space, it sounds like, to process some of the things you were encountering in real life within the safety and comfort of a television show. Is that right? I would say so. And I feel that it continues to give me that space whenever I'm feeling my big emotions. That's so lovely. What a nice space to reside in. Who would you say is your favorite character on the show? Spike is hands down my favorite. Uh, I feel that he makes the most character growth throughout the show. And we hit on some pretty rough topics. Let's stay on Spike for a moment, Maria. Spike is the reason, based on everything you had described about the character, I was like, this guy sounds interesting. I ought to give this show a try. And I remember when I first started watching Buffy, I didn't start on season four on purpose. I asked you for a couple episodes to recommend to me. And... As discussed before on this pod, if I have slept, if I've watched something else, the piece of media is ripped off the media bookshelf, and I could not tell you anything about it, so I'm not sure what first episode of Buffy I watched, but I know it involved Spike. So, if I had to ask you right now, two questions. One is a bit of a hefty one. (laughs) What is it that you like about Spike so much? And two is a bit more action-oriented. What would you recommend to the listener if they want to see key spike moments or get interested in Buffy from here? What episodes would you recommend? If you're interested in getting into Buffy and specifically would like to see the spike moments, I recommend starting with the Halloween episodes. There's one. It would be in season two. There's a school episode that I really recommend then I would recommend picking up at season four. Can you tell me, Spike is the reason why I started watching Buffy because you had said such interesting and curious things about him that I wanted to know more about this show. So can you remind me what it is that you like about Spike? I absolutely adore and love Spike's growth from the beginning of season two where he's trying to destroy the world for one girl and the end of season seven where he's trying to save it for another just such milestones are made in that time what a neat way to say that thank you so you feel inspired by watching the character development right because you are a character driven consumer a lot of characters grow and change on the show what do you think it is about spike's journey that is unique and that resonates with you so much I believe that Spike's journey is the one that resonates with me the most because 
he, in my mind, has the biggest fall and it hits him really hard when he realizes it. He goes on about his life and he's soulless and he does all these evil things and that's acceptable because he is soulless and he doesn't have to do good things. He's evil. And we proceed to then season six, seeing Red, the hardest episode, where Spike nearly rapes Buffy. And then we see later another character's death. He is stopped and at the same time stops himself and realizes how far he's fallen and that he doesn't want to be that person anymore. And I think everyone can relate not necessarily to being that far gone, but to hitting a space where you're just like, I don't want to be who I am anymore. I need to make changes within myself. And then to see all the things he goes through to become a better person and to grow as a character. Is that inspiring to you? It is inspiring to me. Thank you. I think it's neat to see. I feel like when I watch shows like that, when you watch characters go on a journey to improve themselves or to change their lives, that it reminds me of my own humanity and of the humanity of people around me, that they we're all flawed and we make mistakes. But so like there's a, a line in Supernatural that I'm sure is not. It's not like Supernatural invented it. <laughs> That's something, the effect of how flawed people are and how we all make mistakes, but so many of us try. And I find that so reassuring when I see a character just trying so hard to navigate the consequences of the choices they've made and navigate their relationships and try to do better for themselves and those around them. Like, it's just, like you said, it's comforting to watch. Like right now, my comfort show is Stranger Things. I've rewatched it four times this summer. It's been amazing. And so I get through my experience with that, what you mean about returning to something to see the way people move with each other and relate to each other play out in a space that feels safe, even when you're facing these big, scary things, whether they're, what was he called, the master? Yes. (laughs) Or a Demogorgon. (laughs) I love that. What is more human than growing and, like, wanting to grow? And I feel like the quote you had brought up is just so relatable to all of that. So many of us make mistakes or have flaws, but so many of us also try. Yes. On the subject of Spike, if we want to get a little bit more into the granular, do you have any favorite moments with that character or anything that stands out in your mind? Do you have any favorite moments with that character? Favorite moment with that character is probably the love bitch speech I mean he loves bitch but at least I'm man enough to admit it (laughs) beautiful quote (laughs) hanging on my wall love it (laughs) you've given me a card it is sitting on my shelf it brings me joy (laughs) other than that ooh, different scenes with Spike that I really enjoy I enjoy all of his scenes with Drusilla are amazing Drusilla's amazing. Like, she's awful, but she's also amazing. Her character's so intriguing. And so to see the way he interacts with her with such compassion 
when he shows compassion to nothing else is nice. After those, I would probably rank the scene with Willow where he tries to bite her and just feels insecure. It's just such a silly moment in the show. When he tries to bite her and cannot perform to do so. Yes. Because of a microchip. I love how unabashedly silly Buffy the Vampire Slayer is. It makes me get a vampire can't bite you because the government put a microchip in his head. What? <laughs> That's so fun. <laughs> I really found the Willow plotline compelling. I think that I found the part where, you know, it was so quick for her to fall and then such a struggle to climb the ladder back to being on the right side of things. Just impressive and not, I mean, I don't relate to it, but I can see how it would be meaningful to a lot of people. So you really are drawn to shows and characters because you described yourself prior to this conversation as being like a character driven consumer, right? Like you are watching shows because you want to identify with, root for, and sort of follow these people along their journey. And so when you look specifically at Willow and see how she has encountered difficulties in her life and how she has been resilient and chosen to come back and move forward. What would you say, are there any key moments that stand out to you in that journey that come to mind? The reason Willow falls is because the love of her life just dies. And I think we all would be feeling some big feelings if that happened. Understatement, most likely, yeah. So I find that that fall and that reason for a fall is so powerful and meaningful I for sure would be evil <laughs> the people I love passed and I were vengeful the other moment that stands out is the broken crayon speech the fact that friendship is the thing that brings her back from her like negative space and it's that acceptance too right like Xander's unwavering commitment to her yeah. And his willingness to show up for her in that moment when she's at her darkest point, like she's ready. If I remember correctly, because granted, I did. I have seen all seasons four through seven, but I haven't rewatched them four or five or six times. So the episode you're referencing is the one at the end of season six. Right. And Willow's trying to end the world because she's devastated. She can't cope with like the immense grief she has. And she just feels all this resentment. And then Xander comes and gives her that speech. Right. Correct. How does it make you feel? What's your experience of watching that like? Overwhelmed with sadness and just comfort in that, you know, your friends do see you through your darkest and your friends out of all things are going to be the ones to pull you out of your dark spots. I've had pretty great friends like Larissa through my life and they have definitely seen me through some dark times and you've seen me through some as well i'm glad that we're friends i'm glad that you told me about buffy too i have a lot of things to be glad about don't we all <laughs> yeah i'd like to think so i hope that's true <laughs> is there anything about willow that you resonate with or is there something about her as a character that you really enjoy 
I really enjoy early seasons Willow. I think she's so fun. Just the softer sides of side of Coles and the quips made about her, but her cleverness as well. There, I recall a scene specifically in early seasons when Cordelia is looking to deliver something or send something through email, I believe. And she's like, how do I deliver it? And Willow says the DEL button and points out the delete button and deletes the entire project. On purpose? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Maria, as we come to a close, I would like to circle back to the broken crayon speech. And it is so lovely and so meaningful. And I would like to pass it over to you to share some of the lines from that with us. So Xander begins speaking and he says the first day of kindergarten, you cried because you broke the yellow crayon and you were too afraid to tell anyone. You've come pretty far. Ending the world, not a terrific notion. But the thing is, yeah, I love you. I love crayon breaky willow and I love scary veiny willow. So if I'm going out, it's here. If you want to kill the world, well, then start with me. I've earned that. I just think that is so lovely because I think that moment really captures so much of what at least I can say I love about the show, like how peopley it is. I can't think of a smarter or clearer way to say it. It's just how peopley it is and how much these people love and care for each other in all their different moments of life, right? Yeah, and in a show where every bad guy tends to be defeated by supernatural powers I think that it is so nice and refreshing to see the difference humans can make and like the different impact we have on each other as people I can't think of a better way to close it than that Maria thank you for being my friend and thank you for joining us on this storytelling breakdown spotlight Thank you for having me and for being my friend through all the years. Thank you for being my cram breaky willow. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening. Please leave a review, give a rating, subscribe, and share with your friends from wherever you get your podcasts. It all helps Storytelling Breakdown reach more people and grow our community. Check out the SB blog, past episodes, reach out, leave a comment, send a message, especially for the spotlights. We reach out to friends and people in our various social orbits for episode and spotlight content, but it's so cool when you come to us too. You can find Storytelling Breakdown on Facebook and Instagram. Reach out to our team at info at storytelling-breakdown.com. This episode does not mark the end of a very TV and movie-focused season, but it does mark the point where we are going to be making a turn. We will be focusing on the storytelling of tabletop gaming starting in October with a very different creature of the night. (laughs) Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Our podcast is hosted wherever you get your podcasts by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown.
from WSP, Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout.